Welcome to The Mixtape with Scott, a podcast that breathes life into the oral history of economics over the last half century. Here we delve into my personal areas of interest, like the influential work of Gary Becker's students, the fascinating realm of causal inference, and the burgeoning demand for PhD economists in the tech industry. But above all, we explore these changes in pivotal periods through the personal journeys of economists. They guide us from their childhood to the present, sharing the biographies of their work and sometimes even the sociological origins of those works. I'm your host, Dr. Scott Cunningham. This week, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dr. Steve Pischke, a standout figure in contemporary labor economics. Steve's educational journey took him to Princeton Industrial Relations during the late 80s, that transformative era, as longtime listeners now know where the blossoming of the credibility revolution under the stewardship of giants like Orly Ashenfelter, David Card, Alan Kruger, classmate Josh Angrist uh, occurred. Both upon graduating, Steve developed into a distinguished labor economist with a broad spectrum of research interests that has spanned several decades. But in addition to his many publications, he's also the author of a trailblazing book, Mostly Harmless Econometrics, a bestseller that has enlightened and inspired an entire generation. It, in fact, inspired me to write my own book. Our conversation takes us onto a wonderful journey through Steve's life, from his childhood to his initial foray into journalism, and then into economics as both a student and a budding labor economist. It's an enlightening deep dive that reveals the person behind The Economist, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you for tuning in, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Also, check out my Substack, Scott Substack, where I similarly regularly post what I call explainers about econometrics. Thanks very much. Well, uh, today is a real honor to have uh, on the, the podcast uh, a person uh, who's many people listening uh, know by name, uh, Dr. Steve Pischke. Uh, Dr. Pischke, thank you so much for being on the um, podcast today. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Scott. It's my Can pleasure. You- can you tell us your your full name and and if I I know I've just mispronounced it. So your full name, your job title and the name of the the firm that pays your your paycheck. Well, my full name is Jon Steffen Pischke. You pronounced it uh, very well. I go by Steve um, among economists and uh, I'm a professor of economics at the London School of Economics. Oh, great. Okay. All right, before we get started, uh, I'll open with an icebreaker. So what's a book that you have read or a movie that you've watched recently or ever that left a lasting impression on you and why? Whew. Uh, Hmm. Um. I'm into history, and uh, a little while ago, I read uh, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel um, by Jared Diamond, um, and that uh, I did find quite influential. I didn't agree with uh, what it says in the end, you know, setting out to sort of answer a big question, Mm -hmm. um, sort of why the West developed and not other parts of the world I think mm. in the end the answer he gives is is probably not that satisfying mm. um, because it's so much focused on the origins and uh, you know he's a, an evolutionary biologist and it's sort of an economic history question so as an economist you also feel 
there might be things uh you know where it might be good to to have some more econ yeah. knowledge but it's a very well written book and um He uses narratives very well, and uh, I didn't know a whole lot about early prehistory, and and learned quite a bit from from that book. So it did touch me. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Um, uh, that I've always I've always wanted to have a class, and maybe I will do this. Have a class where I read that book, and then read your co-author Asa Moglu and Robinson's book alongside of it i always wondered if those two would be in conversation with each other at all um yeah i, I haven't heard about, i haven't thought about that book in a long time it was so big about 10 years ago or 15 years ago yeah yeah uh well so let's get started so so tell me what can you where did you grow up and, and what are some of the memories you have and experiences you had from that time um i'm from germany i grew up in a small town called ulm in the south of germany um in a middle class family um when i was growing up i would say i was reading a lot both mm -hmm. fiction and non-fiction um at the time you'd get books from the library and i think um at the library I went to, you could check out three at most at once. And I remember one day going when it opened, getting a book, going home, reading it and returning it before the library closed. So I could get another one out. Mm. Um, yeah. In, in school, I was um, taking a lot of math and physics. So was probably more interested sort of in on the science side but then as a teenager I also got interested in political social problems issues and uh, I'm I'm generally interested in a lot of things um, and and like to learn about a lot of things so mm -hmm. I found it very hard to decide what I should do mm -hmm. going to university mm -hmm um that's hard in germany right because you sort of have to have a decision ahead of time that's correct yeah you huh. apply to a particular field um so eventually i decided i wanted to become a journalist huh. um and sort of not not do some science thing also i sort of considered things in between sciences and, and social sciences. Yeah, but I decided to become a journalist and I uh, started studying political science, sociology and economics. So yeah. there's a degree where you could combine um, those. Um, I went to the University of Constance, which is in another small town on the Swiss border all the way in the south. Um, and after my first term, I switched into just economics mm. in retrospect um i'm not sure i remember exactly why i made that switch it was certainly not um that there was some great teaching in the economics courses that i took or i guess i took one course in, in my first term that mm. was actually not not too bad but it was sort of a very high level intro overview 
Hmm. Um, I actually liked the political science course I took uh, a lot. It was sort of about world systems and uh, development. Um, yeah, why some countries are poor, why other countries are rich. So uh, something related to the to the Jared Diamond theme as yeah, well. Right. Um, so something caught your attention, though, to get you out of journalism. <laughs> um, well, I, I continued wanting to be a journalist for a while. So in Germany, you can't study journalism at university. You oh. you study a subject and then when you're done, you do an apprenticeship type training with um, a media organization, newspaper or um, broadcast. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a standard route. So I was still, um, that was still my thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so reflecting on why did I get into economics, um, I guess it was a combination of feeling sort of political science and sociology. I felt you could read literature and mm. it was fairly accessible but economics seemed very alien and, you know, uh, you can't just read something and, and understand it. You really right. need the training. Right. Um, I guess I must have been somewhat intrigued by the fact that economics actually uses math and mathematical modeling. Yeah. And that was something, you know, that, touched on my skills and, and I always liked math as well. Um, and I probably also was getting somewhat worried that a lot of the students in political science all wanted to be journalists and whether there'd be enough jobs out there for all of us. So mm. economics seemed, uh, you know, like a potentially safer. more fruitful, safer major also I don't consider myself as somebody who's sort of greatly worried about these things, like what type of job I would get. Yeah. Um, but that might have played some role as mm. well. Mm. Um, when you were there, so what were you, when you started to switch majors to econ, were you still thinking you might be a journalist then? Yes, yes, yes. You were just thinking uh, this, I'll not do the political. So how did you think the, if you were going to still be a journalist, what was it about the econ that you thought would make it more interesting or better? Well, I mean, you can you can uh, you can report on economic issues, of I course, see. but you know, also, I thought it would give me equally uh, some grounding in an academic field, and then you know, you learn the journalism part as i said anyway you you have to do that with a news organization right uh, yeah but i you know i i spent two years in constance and i kept dabbling sort of in other things as well i took a history course i took an english course mm. and so forth and mm -hmm. did sort of outside things and didn't necessarily concentrate all that much on on all my courses mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, now what so year then is this, what year is this steve yeah what year are you talking about this is, 
in the early 1980s. Early I started 80s. studying in 1981. Got it. Um, so then I, I really wanted to go abroad for a year. Um, and I applied sort of to various exchange schemes. Mm. Um, sort of the, the top one is Fulbright, a Fulbright scholarship, but I didn't get that. It's quite competitive. Then my university had an exchange program with Rutgers, and I didn't get into that either. Mm. My grades weren't good enough. Mm. So my department ran an exchange with a small college in Pennsylvania called Susquehanna University. Mm. And uh, three of us applied for that, and they took three students. So I got into that one. Mm -hmm. So I went for a year to Susquehanna University. It's about an hour north of Harrisburg. Um, on the Susquehanna River. Mm. Um, Is it beautiful? It's beautiful, um, remote. It's in yeah. a small village. It's a college with 1,700 students, very different from a German university that was crowded at the time because I'm sort of in the middle of the German baby boom. Ah. Um, was it the Amish? So Is it the Amish country? Um, not not exactly. Okay. Uh, it's it's sort of a regular regional um, liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. So at Susquehanna, you know, I didn't have to do anything specific, and I just took a wide variety of courses, including a journalism course, a course in broadcasting, and I worked at the radio station reading the news in my horrible German accent at the time. <laughs> Um, but it was cool that you get to do stuff like that at, at American universities. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's less, less prescribed. It was a very different atmosphere as well. I mean, all the classes were at most 15, 20 people, mm. um, no, no large lectures or so. So I actually enjoyed, um, the atmosphere and, so I, I considered why not just stay in the U.S. and finish my studies there, mm -hmm. um, you know, rather than going back to Germany. I didn't, I mean, my university for German standards wasn't particularly big, but um, for its size, it, it did feel kind of crowded mm -hmm. um, at times and yeah, much less, much less personal and so forth. But, you know, I was sort of late in the academic year already when I thought about this and I, I didn't know anything about the US academic system. The German, German universities are all kind of equal. It doesn't matter a lot where you study, particularly as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I had no real clue about the differences in the US between, you know, Harvard and, you know, community colleges and right. all the stuff that's out there. Yeah. So I was living um, sort of in a small um, house called the International House at Susquehanna University, together with the other German visiting students and then some students from there who were going to go to our university the next year. Mm. Um, and there was a faculty couple living in the house. Um, and 
the woman was an English professor. She got her PhD from the State University of New York at Binghamton. Mm. Um, so I knew about Binghamton um, from her. And so I looked at their economics program and they offered a master's and, you know, of course, undergrad and PhD. Um, so I applied. I actually ended up applying to their PhD program. I didn't have an undergrad degree at the time, but in Germany, we go to school for 13 years instead of 12. Mm -hmm. And then I studied for two years in Germany and one year at Susquehanna. You had four years. So I argued if you add it up, it, you get to 16. <laughs> you get 16. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was thinking, well, I could get the master's at uh, at Binghamton. I was still still thinking of becoming a journalist eventually. Uh huh. Um, but I realized if you apply for the master's, you have to pay for it. If you apply for the PhD, mm. they give you a scholarship. Right. Um, but you can get a master's after the first two years of the PhD. So that mm -hmm. seemed to me the better deal. Yeah. Right. Right. So I applied to the PhD and I got in. Um, they were happy with my education adding up to 16 years. Yeah, um, right. They did a not, they did a college dummy based on years of school. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not a very selective PhD program. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so I ended up going to to SUNY, and I spent two years there, and that was actually great for me um it did two things for me one is i never really had good friends at school or at university um but at binghamton there were other people who were perfectly happy to work on homeworks till 11 at night and you know that was sort of we considered that having a good time and you know i mean yeah. you chat and you can have a, a good time. Um, so I had friends there, I felt, and that was different from the places where I was before because it, I'm just a nerd. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of shy, didn't uh, sort of make contacts easily. So that was good. And the second thing is that I really learned economics there. Mm. Um the teaching in Germany wasn't very good. Um, you know, we learned things like how to prove the Slutsky equation, but yeah. I didn't have a conception of what an income and substitution effect is. Yep. Yep. And, you know, at, at Binghamton in the PhD program, that's where I saw the diagram that goes with that. Yeah where you draw the shift in the budget constraint and you see what's going on. Yeah. Okay, now that makes sense. And, mm -hmm. you know, then, you know, you go through the proof of the Slutsky equation again. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was actually good. And the, the, the teaching at Binghamton was good. I had, uh, I had a number of good teachers there. Um, so that was also quite, quite enjoyable. Mm -hmm. um, but I had a friend um, from uh, from Taiwan, and sometime during our first year, um, 
he said, Steve, you know, we need to get out of here. It's really not a good enough place. Mm. And so he applied to other universities and left after the first year. He went to um, Washington University in St. Louis. Mm. I stayed for another year. But at Binghamton, I studying economics at the graduate level, I sort of started to understand, you know, what the important departments are and where the people are that are writing the papers that are on the reading lists and right. so forth. Um, so I also applied to various places in my, my second year. Um, and I ended up going to Princeton. In your second year, you applied to Princeton. Uh, yeah, yeah. So okay, so so did you apply everywhere, or was it that you were drawn to something in particular at Princeton? What year would that have been? <laughs> so I started in Princeton in 1987. Mm. Um, so that's a year I, after Bob was that? Bob Lalonde. Sorry. That's a year after Bob Lalone's AER. The the yes. So yes. The, were you were you starting to hear about the things no. that were going on at Princeton? No. Okay. Um, even when I was there, I didn't know really what was what was going on. I was much more interested in macro at the time. Ah. Um you know, in Germany in the 70s and 80s, unemployment was very high or throughout Europe. Unemployment mm. was very high and wasn't coming down. Yeah. So that seemed one of the major problems. Um, actually, the you know, from starting in Germany, the macro teaching, I think, was better than the micro teaching. And the macro probably appealed more to me at the time. Mm. So yeah, I I wanted to work on macro and unemployment and so forth. Yeah. So after my first year in Binghamton, I took a big trip driving through the US, across the US to California and then up the coast to to Washington and sort of back. And on my way, I stopped at universities and visited their econ departments, tried to find some PhD students and chat with them. Yeah. To find out you know, what might be good places. Um, so I learned about a few departments there. Um, of the places I applied to and got in, actually Princeton was the only one I hadn't visited. Mm. But uh, I had an offer from Harvard and they were giving me some money. And mm. Princeton hadn't offered me any money. Mm -hmm. But... I had visited Harvard on a different trip. It's obviously opposite direction from from Binghamton in the east rather than in the west. So it wasn't on the summer trip. But I'd gone there too and tried to find some PhD students to talk to. And it was the only place where no PhD students wanted to talk to me. So um, I'd labeled Harvard as too snobby. Oh, Harvard didn't, didn't want to talk to you. The, the PhD students, the students didn't, didn't. Got it. Yeah. Okay. You know, I was. This was before I was admitted or anything. Yeah. I was just stopping by, um, sort of. Look, I'm interested in doing a PhD. Um, would you chat with me for a little bit? Yeah. And uh, couldn't find anybody like that. Right. Right. 
So I called Princeton and uh, they offered me whatever Harvard had offered me in, in terms of a scholarship. So I mm. decided Princeton instead. Mm. Did you meet with um, Princeton students? Did some students? I, I hadn't met with any Princeton students. Oh, okay. um, I think I talked to some people over the phone. But again, you sort of can see that I was fairly clueless. I wanted to do macro. And uh, Princeton has ab absolutely no track record in graduating macro students at that time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there were people there, um, Alan Blinder, Ben Bernanke, that, uh, you know, seemed like big, big names in macro. Yeah. So I went I went to Princeton. Mm -hmm. Um. But I didn't have a very big scholarship, so I needed more money. And Princeton in your first year gives you a, an advisor and Ben Bernanke was my first year advisor. So I went to Ben and asked him, look, um, I need some RA work over the summer because I need to make some money. Yeah. And he said, well, if you need money, you should go to the industrial relations section because that's where they have money. Right. Um, so he said, go find a guy called David Card and talk to him. So that was a little bit scary. Um, <laughs> trudging over there, the IR section is not in the department or wasn't in the department at the time. It was in the library and you had to go down all the way down to the dungeons of the library. And I found uh, David Card and spoke to him. And I don't remember exactly anymore. It probably didn't happen that day, but... Uh, Basically, he said, okay, you can have some RA work over, over the summer working for Alan Kruger, who was a new assistant professor at the time. So that's uh, what I ended up doing. And then I kind of got sucked into the whole um, labor crowd there. So coming um, from macro, what what did you, if you had to describe to a macro economist back then, like you could have imagined, you know, you've been around these guys at the at the section for a little while, like maybe a year, and you're you go back and you're talking to somebody that's a macro economist. How would you explain to them how what kind of culture and what kind of people they were in the section? Um I don't know. I wasn't really talking to to macroeconomists. I mean, the the other person who was very influential on me and became one of my advisors was Angus Deaton. Mm. Um, he taught our first year econometrics course, which I thought was very good. Um, so I wanted to take whatever other courses he taught in second year, one of which was development economics, which I found interesting mm. as well anyway. And then he taught a course that was just, um, it was sort of an applied methods course, but it was basically things he had worked on. So the first half of the course was the Deaton and Mühlbauer book on consumer behavior. So that's micro household level modeling. And then he was working on the consumption function book stuff he was doing sort of during the mid 80s. Um, and that was the second half of the book. So that was kind of the the approaches and puzzles in in estimating life cycle consumption models that had popped up at the time and 
where Deaton was involved. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very interested in that because I liked his courses. I liked, you know, Deaton's approach and so forth. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, of course, the macro, it was macro at the time was very much representative agent, no heterogeneity. Right. Um, but, I mean, being in the IR section and being exposed to micro data work and what's going on with households, I was actually very aware that, you know, that can be very different from, from what's going on on the macro side. And that sort of nexus ended up becoming my job market paper, oh. which was on, on consumption. Um, yeah, how did I get away from from unemployment? Um, it was after my second year. David Cart became my main advisor, um, and I had a chat with him, and I told him I wanted to work on unemployment, and I was thinking of maybe estimating VARs of, you know, employment flows into and out of unemployment and so forth. And so we had a discussion for a while, and the discussion ended with David asking me, well, Steve, why do you think unemployment are too high at the end of the day? And I said, well, because wages are too high. Okay, so what are you going to say that's new? <laughs> after after that, I, uh, I didn't work on unemployment anymore. <laughs> So I ended up writing this paper about, um, you know, what's called the, the Deaton paradox, which oh. is the fact that if you pluck an aggregate level income process into a life cycle model, you get a process for the um, for consumption out or changes in consumption, and um the consumption series turns out to be too smooth in the data compared to what the model predicts because what's going on in the macro data is if you if you have a good quarter most likely the next quarter is going to be good too and actually any shock initially gets amplified what so do you it's mean, actually any shock gets amplified on on average the next quarter is going to be even better so um, if you go if you go into a boom, the boom is gonna keep going on. Mm. If you go into a recession, the recession is gonna keep going on on average, right. rather right. than sort of things turning around. Right, right. So the the aggregate income data are not just persistent, but more than than persistent. Uh-huh. Now I knew from a paper by um, by uh, David Cart, About and Cart on labor supply, where they estimated earnings processes. That that wasn't true at the individual or household level. Yeah, um, individual level earnings or incomes are actually less than persistent their transitory components. So, you know, if you get unemployed, you're typically not 
unemployed two or three quarters later, you get a job after a few months on average. Mm. Um, so the, the individual level data would actually predict a different consumption response from the aggregate data. Mm. And that just puzzled me. And I thought, you know, how how can the two be reconciled? Mm. Um, and it seemed to me like with the microdata, there should be no puzzle in mm. the consumption series. And I wondered about that for, for a while, um, but also didn't quite know how to go about it. And I went and talked to Angus Deaton about it, and he listened to me, and then he said, well, if that's right, it would be a great idea, but I think it's wrong. <laughs> but then the next day, he sent me an email with a little toy model of what I was talking about, but he'd mm -hmm. set up the model so, you know, there was an aggregate component to the income process, there was a, an individual component, but both were random walks, so both have the same persistence. So they weren't capturing what I wanted. Right. But then I saw, well, that that's the model, and I just need to to get the the processes right. So at that point, I kind of knew what I had to do. I worked it out. Um, it turns out, as one of my fellow students um, told me, this is the Lucas Islands model mm. um, on inflation, where firms, you know, set prices and they see their own customers and what's going on with their demand. They don't see the whole economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then you aggregate up to what's happening in the whole economy. So individual firms can be, or workers can be fooled for a little bit, but they'll eventually catch up or, yes. you know, Lucas or Friedman um, had those ideas on, on inflation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I worked that out and I, I estimated micro income processes and aggregate consumption processes and put it together. And it, it actually worked out quite nicely huh. um, in explaining the data. Hmm. You know, it's this is not going in the direction I was expecting at all, because, you know, as someone who wrote mostly harmless econometrics and having spoken with some of your advisors and classmates um i was expecting you to tell me you wrote a job market paper using uh some incredible instrumental variables design Th this is uh where where in this is wh where at the section are you beginning to sort of uh notice all this causal inference stuff yeah that's a good question um i mean i was in the middle of all of this, what you're describing. Um, and I certainly didn't notice at the time that there was something going on that was sort of fundamentally new and, you know, it's going to be, I don't know how to describe it, you know, path breaking or yeah, sort of change, changing empirical practice. And I think I mean, one reason is that I was a PhD student. I was learning stuff. I had no real sense of the history of where economics was coming from and how it was done. 
Right. Um, so, you know, I listened to whatever my teachers said and that made sense. And they all seemed very careful researchers and about doing careful research and getting things right. So I thought that was just how things are done. Right. Um, and, you know, the the Deaton work and the About and Card paper I talked about, um, I mean, they're much more structural. They're not yeah. deeply structural, but, you know, they're combining models and taking sort of direct insights from the models to data. And, and that was kind of what I was doing in, at the time too, by, you know, sort of estimating our components models for income processes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I did see that there was this, um, this stuff going on around me and people were interested in credible identification and, you know, using diffs and diffs and instrumental variables. So, I, of course, I learned about about these things. Yeah. I don't think at the time I saw a particular tension or so. Um, you know, David Cart in particular was doing both, and I don't think he saw a particular tension. Yeah. I thought he just, you know, wanted to tackle important problems and get them right right and different problems are sort of requiring different methods so yeah that's um that's kind of how i felt now when i was at princeton i never knew about the lalonde paper i never knew about the ashenfelter training papers um you know, I mentioned before that I'm interested in a lot of things. Yeah. So, in particularly in my second year at Princeton, I think I took a lot of different courses that weren't really required. Um, I took a history of economic thought course that clashed with the labor lecture. So I only went to half the labor lectures. <laughs> and I don't know whether Orly ever talked about the training program stuff, <clears throat> he taught labor supply. Mm. And I mean, at the time when I was a PhD student, Orly was kind of withdrawing and not uh, that active. Mm. He was editing the AR and that took a lot of his time. And he was very much into his wine economics that yeah. was, was new at the time. So he was around sometime, but he wasn't as engaged so yeah i didn't get it from orly um david card taught some labor demand stuff that was fairly structural mm. bob Bins was visiting the year when i was there and taught part of the labor and he taught sort of some labor theory which you know was very helpful to learn mm. i thought and um so alan kruger was the one you know, we was talking about program evaluation um, type things. Um, for example, he talked about the Solon unemployment insurance work um, that was part of Gary Solon's Princeton 
PhD, but my understanding is Gary pretty much did that on his own, sort of trying to find good methods, you know, to get around the fact that benefits tend to be correlated with worker, worker characteristics and you need to isolate, um, you know, changes in benefits that just come from the rules rather than from individual circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to figure out what the effect of the, the benefit rules are. Yeah. So he was one of the first sort of to applying different diff type methods mm. using state level changes in laws to to these problems and that was something we learned bruce meyer was visiting mm. um for a year while i was a phd student also working on unemployment insurance and writing papers in that style so yeah i mean i, I got exposed to some of that and then of course i saw um david was writing about the Mariel boat lift. Um, David and Alan Kruger were writing about the minimum wage. Um, you know, the the Angrist and Kruger compulsory schooling paper um, was sort of a prominent piece that uh, that was coming out at the time. Yeah, but again, I you know I thought of these just as as good research, right. really. Right, right, right. So, <clears throat> so um, uh, moving into your that that period of time when you're doing you're doing your early research, um, I wanted to talk a little bit now to kind of pivot a little bit. I wanted to talk a little bit about your work on um, training on uh, that was with uh, Dr. Asimoglu. Before I get into it, though, how how what's the origin of that relationship with Darone Samoglu? Was he? Did you know him at LSE? Is that where you guys knew each other? No. Um, so again, you know, I remained fairly clueless even when I finished my PhD. Uh -huh. um, so I decided to go back to Germany, and I worked in Germany for two years, and uh, that wasn't a good experience mm. because Germany by the late 80s early 90s was still kind of a backwater it German economics hadn't been very integrated with what's going on in the international community mm -hmm. it was unusual for people to go abroad and so forth um, and I worked at a research institute and I really didn't particularly like the job, it was sort of you were supposed to raise money. Mm. Um, it wasn't sort of just academic. So, um, you know, I decided after a little while to go back on the job market and I got a job at MIT. Mm. So I moved to MIT the same year as Duran. And we had offices next to each other. Mm -hmm. um, but while I was in Germany, and uh, you know, I, I always seem to happen to stumble sort of upon interesting things in, mm -hmm. in my career more than seeking them out. Um, but uh, one of my colleagues I was working with 
um, had invited Tom Kane, who's an education economist. And Tom was very interested in the German apprenticeship system. Yeah. So I was chatting with him about that. And he was using the visit to go around to firms and talk to them about um, apprenticeships. And because I was a labor economist, um, more, more than a macroeconomist by that time, um, I went along and uh, stuff seemed interesting. I didn't really know that much about the German apprenticeship system, but it was sort of intriguing. And the main intriguing point was, you know, the firms pay apprentices in order to get trained. So that was very much going against the grain of the Becker model we have that workers should be the one who pay for their own training if the training is valuable in in different firms. Now, mm. the apprenticeship is very regulated and the apprentices do exams at the end and their curricula and so forth. So the skills are meant to be general and portable to other employers. That's part of the whole point. Yeah. Um, so that seemed to present a puzzle um, in in big firms in Germany, you know, for the first year, the apprentices would just spend all their time in a training workshop and not produce anything, yet the firm pays them something. Right. So um, there was this puzzle that, that didn't fit with Becker. Mm. So I got interested in that. And when I was at MIT, I started talking to Duran about that. And Duran was interested in sort of two-sided investment problems mm. and matching and so forth. And I started writing about that. Um, you know, and I had the hunch that it must somehow be some adverse selection problem that the firms learn something about the apprentices. You know, at the end of the apprenticeship in Germany, um, the, the the contract ends. So the apprentices have no right to stay at the firm. The firm can let them go. But in practice, of course, the firms will hire most of the apprentices into permanent jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, but of course, some of them, they decide the, the bigger firms who took um, the sort of actually not necessarily the bigger ones, all firms, but particularly the smaller ones actually let a lot of their apprentices go. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, that that certainly won't be random. Those will be the workers they like the least. Right. Um, so maybe that's that's the explanation. So, yeah, Duran and I were talking about those issues, and um, it took us a while. Um, Duran always works on a lot of stuff and a lot of different topics at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I think it was mostly um, getting him sort of to the point um, where he would give this these ideas enough thought. But then mm -hmm. once he gets into something... He's, you know, really um, 
very dynamic and uh, mm. and gets things done very quickly. Mm. So yeah, we ended up uh, writing a bunch of papers, building on these ideas. So the the first paper took this adverse selection idea and and uh, we worked that out and we came up so with an empirical test using the fact that uh, in Germany men do military service, compulsory military service, or used to at the time. And, um, you know, whether you do your military service exactly after the apprenticeship, that happens for some, but not everybody. So if that's reasonably random, then the mm. people who have to separate from the firm to do military service and then don't go back, those separations are probably less self-selected than mm. the workers that are being kicked out mm. by the firms because they're lemons. Mm. So uh, we've exploited that idea. And then- is it exactly, Steve, how is it exactly different from Becker? I'm not sure I followed completely. What is so, Becker say, what what empirical regularity is Becker saying shouldn't be happening? So Becker is saying um if the training the firm gives you if that's useful at other firms as well. Yeah. So other firms would be willing to pay you for your skills. Um then the workers should be financing their own training. And that doesn't have to mean that the workers give money to the firm that trains them, mm. but that might happen just through wages being lower than what they otherwise would be because most workers, while they get trained, they do something productive for the mm. firm as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily easy to see this from the data. Yeah. Who pays? But for the German apprenticeship uh, system, that seemed fairly clear that the firms were financing some of the training up front. And there's some other examples um, that are pretty stark um, as well. So, you know, training where the firms really paying for it did seem to go on in markets. And we wanted to come up with an explanation. Well, what, what has to be different from the Becker setup where the labor market is competitive um, for that to come about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you need some market imperfection that the firms um, get some rents from the employment relationship. So if they finance the training up front, they can recoup those investments later. Mm. Um, and oh, oh, need an incentive oh. to do that. So the rents, the difference between wages and the workers' productivity actually has to be going up in their skill levels. Is the fact that the firm is paying for their human capital accumulation even evidence for labor market imperfections? Well, um, according to what we say, yeah. That, that's what I mean, in your you mind. It, it has to be labor market imperfections. That's part mm. of the explanation. And they're doing it because they can sort of scrape back on the back end. Yes. And, you know, if the rents they earn from uh, the skilled workers are yeah. higher, then they have an incentive to actually um, 
training their workers and making them them more skilled. Yeah, this is kind of crazy. So I'm not gonna this I could be completely off base. But I was just like, as you were talking, because earlier, you said, you know, when you were looking at graduate schools, you were looking at the master's programs, and you were going to have to pay for the master's programs. But then in the PhD programs, they paid for you. And and then I just started thinking, you know, you could argue I mean, one, the graduate school is where you're getting skills, and you're getting apprenticed. And you got apprenticed by Angus Deaton and David Card. And you could argue that graduate schools are extremely uh, monopsonistic in the sense that it's very difficult to leave a program to go to another one. I mean, you did it, but you have to like go to a different city and you have to start over. And so there's all these frictions. So I was Mm. just kind of wondering is your model with Dr. Asimoglu, is it general enough that you would even say, well, there's elements of this, even in our main way we, that workers get skill graduate PhD programs and things like that. Do you think that there's anything to that? Well, that's a very interesting thought. I never thought about that. Um, I mean, I think the PhD students are part of the university's production function. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do contribute to what universities do. They do relatively cheap teaching in particular. Right. Um, because we get the PhD students to do all the things that we as professors don't find as pleasant, like doing a lot of grading. And <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> like that. So that's probably why it's worth paying them. Right. But... I mean, maybe the PhD is a little bit different. I mean, I'm thinking on the research side. I guess there's some of that too. Our A work, again, we get the PhD students to do the stuff that's more mundane and boring. Yeah. Uh, Right. But I mean, if you have good PhD students, they are also contributors and collaborators and you know, it's sort of fun having them around and having them be part of the the research process. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a little different. It's not. It doesn't. Yeah. It has some. It's got some topical features that, but yeah. it's not really. It's not really the same kind of phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, actually, sort of thinking about European countries. In many European countries doctoral students will be real employees of the university. Mm. Um, So, you know, primarily they are there to, to do some teaching and grading and so forth. Yeah. Um, And that's kind of a part-time job they get paid for. And then they also, you know, work on their dissertation. Right. Right. The rest of the time. Yeah. You You know, what chapter of your book is not in your book? is something that reminds me of your paper with John DiNardo, uh, mm. where you look at this, this literature uh, that I think maybe was started by Dr. Kruger, looking at um, the returns to computer use and um, on wages, this kind of larger old literature on technology and labor and inequality, which probably with this chat GPT stuff, we might start to see <laughs> that literature come back alive again. But the way that you and Dr. DiNardo went about it was this sort of uh, uh, this way of 
I, in my interpretation of it, this way of challenging that result was what I just kind of call the placebo analysis or the falsification analysis. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's actually one of those kind of subtle ideas that is very hard to teach a, a student at the beginning, you know, that like the falsification is actually really, really important for um, causal inference. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, first, I just was just wondering, you know, when you wrote that, that is, is that a correct interpretation of, of how you and Dr. DiNardo kind of went about that question of looking at pencils? Yes. Type of, can you tell me a little bit about that and how that idea came yeah, out? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you described it very well. Um, well, first of all, you know, Alan Kruger's paper on computers and wages. So this is data from the 1980s, basically. Um, personal computers were just coming around at that time. Um, when I did my PhD, we worked on mainframes. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you had to, you know, go to the computer center to pick up your output and, and so forth. Um, so it was a different world then. But PCs were coming around. And PCs were percolating in in businesses, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so there were some workers who used computers by the early 90s. There were many workers who didn't use any computers. And Alan had that idea of looking how that's associated with wages mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, what what might be going on? So you know, it's a great it's a great paper. Yeah. Um, and Alan picked up that they asked about whether you use a computer on your job on the current population survey, which is the main U.S. labor force survey. So large samples, um, you know, and data that are around for for various period uh, for for long periods. <clears throat> yeah. So. Uh, how did uh, John DiNardo and I get uh, got into the pencils paper? Um, well, I was at, at MIT. John was visiting for a year. John had been a PhD student at Princeton um, as well. He was a couple of years ahead of me and was one of those older PhD students who was a bit of a mentor who I'd mm. go to for questions. And um, John was always happy to chat and is a very you know, was a very jolly um, fellow. So when he was visiting MIT, we were talking about the Kruger computers paper. Yeah. And John said, you know, I bet you if you had uh, a data set where you knew whether people use uh, pocket calculators, those people would have a wage premium too. Mm. I said, well, I have a data set that has that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that's in fact the data uh, Duran and I were using for, for the apprentice analysis. And it's a data set about worker skills and where they get skills from. Yeah. And so it asks workers about all types of things they may be using on their job and all types of things they may be doing on their job. 
So it asks, are you using a computer on your job? Are you using, you know, a cash register, desk calculator? Mm-hmm. Are you using a hammer? Are you sitting down while you're working? You know, are you using writing materials like pen and paper? Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, we went to my office and cranked up the data set and looked and basically all these things have positive wage differentials except for the ham except for the hammer yeah (laughs) so how did you interpret that because so um was, was was the idea of using a falsification is that something that like in the longer tradition of labor and and economics at that time that was not an uncommon way to go about it like to challenge a paper you know, might be to, to, to use the falsification approach or was this really novel what you guys were doing? I don't know whether it was novel. I mean, it, the, that basic idea must have been around uh, for a long time. I mean, the, the idea behind the Kruger paper is, you know, he wanted to argue that computers were coming around um, they are changing what type of workers firms will want to hire. They will want to hire workers that have skills complementary to using computers. Do those workers then get paid higher wages? I think sure. that's... Yeah, it's like a skill bias, uh, golden cats kind of story. That That's kind of the idea. So, you know, the pencils were attractive in particular because we think that being able to write is a skill that everybody has right. and, and, and the, the, our data were from Germany, not the US, but either country. So it shouldn't be a skill that you get paid for because if everybody has that skill, that sort of just, it shouldn't be associated with any wage differential, Yeah, right? Whether you write on your job, it's not right. because you're able to write, um, you know, it's because some jobs require it, others don't. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it uh, it provides a falsification test because it might suggest that it's just different jobs um, that mm-hmm. get higher pay, and the higher paid jobs happen to be ones where you're writing things. They happen to be ones where you might be working with a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's picking up something else about about the jobs and maybe yeah. the workers that, that work in these jobs, but it's not the computer per se. Right, right. It was selection, or there might be more selection going on than there is causal effects. Exactly. Right, because you're not randomizing those computers. Yes. Right, right. Well, so th- we're sort of at the top of the hour, and I wanted to kind of uh, close with a, with a, with a question. Um, so uh, if you could go back in time, and you could talk to your younger self, um, what would you tell them about, you know, what's important in life? What's important in uh, having a career? Uh, what is it that they should be, you know, what's the best advice you could give that young, that young version of yourself about the hmm. years to come? Huh. So, I mean, looking, looking back, back at my career, um, you know, it wasn't all very planned out, but in retrospect, I feel very lucky about 
all the people I've met and I managed to work with. Um, you know, Alan Kruger, whom I started as an RA and then became a co-author. And I feel a little bit sad about the pencils paper that I think John and I didn't communicate with Alan well enough at the beginning. And Alan mm. actually got quite upset about our paper at a point. Mm. Um, yeah, but you know, what do you wish? Oh, what, what do you wish you if you could do that again? What would you do different? I, I think we should have just talked to Alan earlier. Yeah, um, about what we're doing, getting his comments. Um, you know, I mean, we were we were writing about his paper, so that was a fair thing to yeah. do. Right. Right. Um, you know, I mean, we probably would have written the paper anyway. Sure. Um, Alan probably wouldn't have liked it anyway, but uh, still. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, Deaton and Cart um, were great and very influential on me. Um, you know, Josh Angrist, of course, was at Princeton at the time. I, as a PhD student, I didn't know him that well, but he joined MIT a few years after me mm. um, and we taught a course together. So he became a big influence on me and teaching together with, with Josh, I set into, you know, the part that he taught and that's, you know, where I really learned all the treatment effects stuff and the, the history of that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I feel very lucky about that. It wasn't planned on my part at all. Mm. Um, I happened to come across good opportunities and, you know, I think I, I hopefully took the right ones, uh, when they came around, um, pretty happy with what I managed uh, to do and be a participant in, I mean, certainly working with, with Josh on the books later on, um, was a great part i think in terms of advice to younger people um do the things that you enjoy and uh, that really interest you mm. um i mean you'll by now understand that i uh, didn't become a, a journalist that at some point you know i found that i liked the academic work sitting in an office and um you know working till late at night on some thorny problem and yeah yeah you know, yeah and sometimes you know cracking problems and you know paper comes out that then decades later somebody still asks you about <laughs> well it's so nice to meet you uh steve i've been such a you're you're book in particular had uh just a transformative uh effect on my my career and uh in more ways than i was anticipating and i learned so much from it and i i still learn so much from it all the time and uh um just want to thank you for for that book it's neat uh you know you you've been such a central figure um in the training of a whole generation of, uh, you know, uh, quantitative social scientists all over the world. That must be, you know, really a rewarding uh, feeling. 
or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, I, I think it, it is true that you've trained, you've helped train a whole generation. Yeah, we're certainly very happy that it seems like the the books have found an audience and uh, particularly younger economists like them and get something out of them. Um, so we're, we're happy about that. Yep. Good. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really nice to hear your story and uh, just to hear you talking. I was just lo loved, loved just falling into your story. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Scott, for interviewing me. It's been my pleasure being on your podcast, and uh, I hope it's interesting to the listeners. Gotta see you soon.